All right, go ahead. Have the Bible open to Galatians. I really don't know where. <laughs> I don't know where we're going to end up. Uh, actually, don't, go to First Corinthians. Go to First Corinthians. Galatians and First Corinthians. You'll need. All right. I don't even know uh, where to begin this morning. Obviously, we have uh, a lot to um, cover. Let me get this out of the way. One, I want to make sure it's uh, recorded because it's such a hot topic today, all over the place. Um, if you don't keep up with what's happening in Christianity, then you have no, you won't ever know what's going on. But for, uh, if for some reason you hear about it, um, at MacArthur's church, they did a conference. I think it ended on the 18th of October, maybe the 19th. I don't remember the exact dates. I think it was three days, two days. I think it was called Truth Matters. I think it's the name of the conference. And um, in the conference, uh, which they do in most of those, confer- all those big conferences, they love to do the Q&A. Right. You put all the speakers from the conference up on the stage. You have a moderator and then they ask some questions to the pastors. All the people sit and listen to the Q&A. And it's it's kind of designed, obviously, for the the speakers to be, uh, you know, you kind of get to know them. They can use humor. And it's you know, it's always supposed to be this fun little situation. All right. It's always dangerous in that situation because when you're up on stage and you're speaking and everyone's looking at you and you're doing a Q&A, you're going to try to answer the questions in a way that's going to be a little bit more entertaining. It's kind of just built into it to be, hey, you know, you're not just going to answer the question. You're going to, you know, you're going to say things to, I mean, to keep people halfway entertained. And that's always dangerous because that means your questions may contain, maybe, may, you may be trying to say things you may be trying to say the right things, but you're doing trying to say it in an entertaining way. But you're doing this dealing with theology and church, and it, it, yeah, or it, may, it, it can be perceived the wrong way. Okay, so they uh, at the end of the conference they decided to do this thing, basically a word association game. You have all the speakers on the stage; they're going to throw out, um, you know, a phrase or a word, and then you're supposed to give a pithy response to it. You already know that this has just got danger written all over it, okay? So the first, the first statement made was Beth Moore, okay? Now, immediately, 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 from, you know, now from the outside looking in, it's always easy to, to fix it from the outside, right? What should have been said is, wait a minute, we, we, if you're going to do this Q&A and we're going to do this little word association game, don't throw out a, another person's name, right? Because whatever is going to be said, it's going to come across as slanderous. It's, going to, it's just, it's not going to be good. And I understand that, like, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm on the stage playing this game and they say Beth Moore, my first words are not going to be very nice, okay? I'm going to probably say heretic, who knows what, right? And again, that there, there may be truth in that, but it comes across more as just we're all, we're all here talking about this person instead of me teaching about what this person teaches. It's just, it's, it's just set up for failure, right? So MacArthur is the first to respond, all right? And his response was two words, go home, which now has exploded all over the place and everyone's ticked off. Because it makes it sound like he's telling the woman, go home, right? Hey, you know, for the woman, just go home and be quiet, you know, go to the kitchen, cook something, just, you don't, you don't have a place at the table, just be quiet. 
All right. And so, of course, people are accusing him of misogyny and all the other because 2019, you know, you know how that statement is going to be made. The president of the Southern Baptist Convention, then he responds on Twitter saying, well, Beth Moore's invited to my house. Right. OK, so he's the good guy. MacArthur's the bad guy. And it all it all just blows up. The, the, the thing is, whenever and the audio's going around, it's, it's about a seven minute clip uh, because the other men respond and and then he come back. Now, MacArthur does try to expand a little bit, you know, and that part's being forgotten. They're just remembering his first two words. Go home, which, of course, Daddy's speaking of a woman. You know how it's being perceived, you know, it's being perceived. And obviously that's not, you know, I know what he meant. Basically what he means is, look, her theology is bad. She shouldn't be preaching to men. She should go home. I don't think he's viewing it from a, you know, go, go to the kitchen kind of situation. I don't think he probably meant it that way. But that's the problem with the Q&A little game. Hey, we're going to do word association. Nothing could possibly go wrong. And we're going to throw out the name of a person. Nothing could go wrong, right? And of course, everyone in the, in the, in the pew, everybody's laughing, and it's all wonderful. And he gets an applause, and everybody applauds. And it just comes across as wrong. So if you hear about it, that's, that's what occurred. You know, obviously, I think Beth Moore is basically a heretic. I believe she shouldn't be preaching to men. I believe that's in the Bible. I just believe that that's the wrong way to handle it. If they handle it, it's like, okay, I'm not going to give you a pithy response. I'm not going to take your bait. We want to have an in-depth discussion about Beth Moore's theology and her practice uh, preaching before men. We can. But I'm not going to take the bait. But if I would have been sitting there, I would have I taken the bait. I would have taken the bait because you know. And then once everyone starts applauding, it just feeds it. It just feeds into it. So just keep that in mind if you, if you need to know and well, I may be posting something on that. If I get the audio, I may post the whole audio on the app so that you can hear it for yourself if you hear um, everyone talking about it because it's such a, a thing now. All right, so got that out of the way. I want to at least get that on recording because I'll have people asking me my opinion on it. All right, I don't even know where to start other than this. We still have a long ways to go in trying to fix this problem. So let's first summarize the problem. We have summer, uh, it all started in Romans 2.6. And Romans 2.6 teaches us what very controversial truth. God judges us according to our deeds, according to our works. And so we, we took that verse and we compared it with the other teaching of the Bible and we summarized our, the, the, the conflict that arises in what way? That we're justified by faith, but we're going to be judged according to our works. How does this make any sense? How do we reconcile this? We talked about it and talked about it, and then we decided, uh, or I decided to pull up one of the four views books that gives us four different views on trying to resolve this problem. The first view is very simple. Christians will be judged according to their works, not at the final judgment, but at the rewards judgment. This, this, this first view it, it works so well because we have at least a judgment according to works, but what do we preserve? We preserve that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. We can preserve the two. It works. The only problem is there's some verses that it just, uh, we can't get all of those judgments out of rewards judgment because some of those verses don't fit. All right. So we won't go back through all of that because we've talked about it. Now we moved on to view number two. View number two is justification apart from and 
by works. All right? This one basically says that we are justified by works, but we're justified by works in what way? We're justified by works in the sense that works are the evidence of our justification. Now stop right there. The major, the first major problem with this view is you, you have to change the definition of justification. And what we have discovered now is that really what this is going to come down to is this. How do you define justification? Remember in our view of eschatology, what we ultimately came down to is it was a hermeneutical problem. This is a definition problem. How do you define justification? Now, view number two in the book, they changed the definition of justification and they, redu- and they didn't really change it. They just reduced it to what? That justification is simply an acquittal where you are declared not guilty. Stop right there. Now, I am declared not guilty. I'm acquitted. Now, guess what I need? I need evidence to demonstrate that I was justified. That's what they claim. We come along and say, wait, 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 wait. The traditional Protestant, especially Reformed definition of justification goes way beyond an acquittal. Goes way beyond a not guilty verdict. We believe the definition of justification involves not only an acquittal and not only a not guilty verdict, it also involves something else. A declaration that I'm just not guilty, but that I am righteous, perfectly righteous, because what's been imputed to my account or accredited to my account is the active and passive obedience of Christ. It's been accredited to my account, so when God looks upon me, what kind of righteousness does he see? Perfect righteousness, the righteousness of his son. What kind of obedience does he see? Perfect obedience. Therefore, do I need evidence to prove my justification? The only evidence I need is the life and obedience and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I can't add to that. What evidence do I need? So they they make a theological error. When all, and you know Christians who believe in the evidential view, this, the evidential view was a part of this church. What happens is we state the evidential view, but we never connected it with our definition of justification. The two were in conflict. MacArthur believes in our definition of justification. His evidential lordship view contradicts his definition of justification. What he is arguing is that you need evidence to prove what? Not your justification, but to prove your sanctification. Now, at that moment, another, another theological dilemma occurs. This is how they say it. If you're justified, you will be sanctified. If you are not sanctified, you will not be glorified because you were never justified, therefore making them all connected, not separate. 
Now the book does not argue, the book argues that this is proof of justification, but it cannot be proof of justification if our definition of justification is correct. Does everybody understand that? So this comes down to how are you going to define justification? Now, I could give you all the opportunity, but this is, this, and, and, and every person in this room needs to realize this. Your definition of justification, you got to have biblical basis for your definition. And I doubt any of you have went through from Genesis to Revelation and formulated a definition of justification. You embraced a definition of justification without biblical study on how to formulate your definition. And that puts us all, that, that creates a different problem, Okay. So, but this view is arguing for evidence. Now, in this view, let's be fair. They have done a very good job of telling us the Bible says we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. They have done a very good job on that. And the Bible's filled with verses that indicate that. Would everyone agree? All right. However, they also now, what they're trying to uh, do, do in the book is argue, wait a minute. At the same time, the Bible seems to make it clear Works are involved, which it does. So we are looking at, they, they spend a lot of time showing us how works are required in the book of Galatians. Everybody remember that? All right. Uh, there's a key verse in Galatians we'll get to in a minute. Now, now what the book is going to do, they're going to advance the argument and they're going to move to some other passages of Scripture. Now we're going to try to go through this quickly because I don't know how much more time we need to spend in this view and I want to just skip to the third view, but we got to be fair here to at least build this part because here's what, here's what I'm afraid is going to happen in this church. Some are just going to say, you know what, don't care. I'm saved by grace alone through faith alone. I don't need to worry about it. I'm good. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The Bible's filled with verses that say works are required. So you can't just ignore the works verses because you like the grace verses. And you can't just ignore the grace verses because you like the work verses. You got to have what? Both. And that's the reason this, these books are being written to try to resolve this problem. We're trying to resolve the problem. So we're going to let him build his case on why works are necessary by giving us a number of scriptures. All right. The first one is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. All right. So before we even read the book, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Probably already know where he's going. If you don't, you should. Everybody there? All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, I'm not going to read uh, the first part. Uh, well, I'll just give you a, a summary. Starting in verse 1 to verse 8 is talking about not bringing a lawsuit against uh, another believer. Okay? Civil lawsuit. Can't do that. If it's two believers, you can't take them to court. What do you need to do? You've got to resolve it yourself or bring it before the church. Now, this, this believes that the church has authority, which, again, this falls apart in the Protestant world, but, okay, it, back then, they believed the church had authority. All right? Here we go. Um, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now stop right here. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now from our definition of justification, we would say, Amen. Because we, will, we won't be unrighteous. We will be declared righteous because what righteousness has been accredited to our account? 
Christ. All right? So we, we can get around this, but wait and see how this verse reads. All right? So know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Stop right here. Now, what's the obvious question everyone who reads the Bible should ask when they read this verse? Okay, well, y'all read the Bible. When you read that verse, what questions do you ask? It's not a trick question. Do what? Woe is me. Okay, exactly. The, the question is, wait a minute. So if, does anyone commit one of these sins once? Are they excluded? Can you commit the sin and still be saved? Right? Is this a practice? Is it, like, how do you explain it? If you read it, it just says, anyone who what? These things. However, the next verse seems to indicate that you can commit these things and be saved. Because what does the next verse say? And such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now stop right there. Okay. You see why this verse is critical. This seems to say that if you're lost, you are described as one of those things. If you're saved, you're no longer like those things. So therefore, if you're truly saved, you will be different. Making this an evidential argument. Right? Now, what is, the, what is the problem with it? Saying it that way, everyone says amen to. Right? Hey, see? If you're truly saved, you're, you're going to be different. Everyone says amen. And then everyone goes home and have lunch at noon. Okay, well, wait a minute. I still got some questions. Right? Yes? What happens if you become a, a saved? Let's go back through that list. Okay? Fornicator. Have you ever known any Christians to commit fornication? If we, if, we, if we limit fornication, if we limit fornication just to premarital sex, just to sexual relationship before marriage, if we limit it there, I believe the Greek word's pornea there. I could be wrong. If it is pornea, it just means sexual immorality. Does the NIV use sexual immorality or fornicators? Or sexually immoral, okay? Because I think the, the word carries a, a broader meaning. But let's just limit it to fornication. You know how many churches where you have professing Christian teenagers who... who okay, well, we'll, 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 well, many adults are married, so fornication wouldn't apply in that particular... Adultery would apply there, but okay. But, but just start, start with fornication. Wait a minute. Does that mean they can, they're lost? Now, this raises what questions? Lose your salvation. All right. Okay. Well, okay. Never had it in the first place. How, how does this work? Now, others will come back. And so what's the typical Protestant answer at this point? What's the typical Protestant answer to the question I'm asking? It's not speaking of a one-time act. It's speaking of 
a lifestyle. In other words, you cannot live as a fornicator and be saved. Well, that's reducing fornication to now what? An external act, not an internal act. Okay, wait a minute. I know, I know a lot of Christians who may not commit the physical act, but I bet you if we, take, if we throw in pornography, lust, we're going to have all churches filled with fornicators. Right? Sexual immorality would involve more than just premarital sex. It would involve all kinds of sexual immorality. Well, you, I mean, you look at the statistics of pornography used by people in the church... Are they saved? Now everybody's going to say, yes, they are. Such were some of you, seeming to indicate not anymore. anymore. Next, what's the next one? Okay, idolaters. Now what is idolatry? Now are you you going to reduce idolatry to simply an actual idol or to placing anything before God? Churches are filled with people who place things before God. They place their career before God. They place their family before God. They place... They they place hobbies before God, entertainment before God. How do you even identify when you're not an idolater? Well, now you have to come down to time, money. I can can prove that probably everyone in this room is an idolater. Well, okay, wait. Such were some of you. When did y'all change? Next. Adulterers. If any man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed. I don't want to show a hand from all the men, but I bet you there's a lot of adul- adulterers in this room. Oh, women, you're, you're, you're guilty too, so don't pretend that you're not. Okay, all right. All right. Effeminate, there's homosexuality, most likely, is how most would interpret that. I think the NIV even uses the word homosexuality. Okay, all right. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous. There's, has anyone here ever been covetous? Now, the one, the one I'm very, I, I don't have any problem with is I, I'm not a drunkard because I don't drink alcohol, so I, I'm never even come close to that one, so I'm good to go. I'm going to heaven. Whew. I found one I can obey. I can find one. Okay. All right. Revilers, extortioners, shall, uh, shall, not, shall inherit the kingdom of God. None of them shall inherit the kingdom of God. That, that raises lots of questions, doesn't it? And no matter what system you go with, it's difficult. Agreed? If you go with evidential argument, then the evidential argument is the minute you commit one of those things, then you question whether you were ever saved. And again, do you reduce those things to physical acts? If you reduce them to physical acts, there's a good chance you can avoid those. Right. Right. So, but I'll make sure you understand. If we if we keep it if we keep it uh, external, there would be you could make an argument you could avoid it. Agreed. If we just kept it, but if we go with what Jesus seems to say, that there, how, how do I judge this? So even if, if I go with evidence, I, I have to keep the evidence external because if I move it to internal, how many people are going to be guilty? Everyone. 
This is a, this is a very problematic passage. Now, if you go with the other view, like, hey, I don't need any works because works are just going to deal with my rewards and I'm good. I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone. I've got, I don't need any works. This verse comes in and challenges that perspective, does it not? So how do you find the balance here? This is a, this is a troubling verse. Everyone should know that. It's a troubling verse. And it would also put a lot of people in the Bible in hell. <laughs> okay? Right? David went after all of those, right? He, he went after all of them. And some would say, well, he's Old Testament. He doesn't count. Okay, well, I mean, when, when Paul was saying the things he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the things he doesn't want to do, he, what, what, I wonder what was on his list of things he was doing that he shouldn't do and the things he didn't want to do he ended up doing. I wonder what was on that list. Okay, that, that's the thing. So this is how the book uh, reads here. The necessity of good works is also emphasized in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. And six in chapter 6, 1 through 8, Paul addresses the problem with lawsuits in the congregation. What, what annoys him is not that the lawsuits, not the lawsuits per se, for, for he understands that conflicts arise among Christians. What he finds outrageous is that the believers called on unbelievers to resolve their problems, that they were unable to you know, fix the matter among themselves. Such behavior brings a stain on the gospel they proclaim and hence on the name of Christ. All right. Fine, we've got no problem with that. The believers should surrender their own rights that they don't uh, grumble about being wronged or defrauded. Actually, the believers are not forgiving the sin of others, but committing sin themselves. They, um, they wrong and defraud others, 1 Corinthians 6, 7 through 8. Now, the link between chapter 6, 7 through 8 and chapter 6, verse 9 is forged by the word unrighteous or wrongdoers. In six, nine, and that's in chapter 6, verse 9. And Paul says, And don't you know that wrongdoers, or unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God? The link between chapter 6, 7 through 8, and chapter 6, verse 9, demonstrates that he is addressing believers in 6, 9. His words are not directed to unbelievers, but to the redeemed community. Now, that's a very valid Textual argument. He's talking to, to Christians in chapter 6, 1 through 8, correct? Everyone should say amen unless you know, we need to take a reading class, okay? Right? He's obviously talking to Christians. So his argument is in verse 9, he would have to be talking to whom? The same people. So therefore, this would be a warning to whom? To Christians. Making an argument that what is necessary for your salvation? Works. That's the argument being made. The Corinthians' behavior in the matter of lawsuits was not trivial, for it showed a, uh, showed a grasping and selfish spirit that does not, does, does not accord with new life and Christ. Hence, Paul warns them that they are drifting into danger for those who practice evil will not inherit the kingdom of God. Please note, he uses the word practice. So he's going to make an argument that this is a lifestyle. This is a lifestyle. Well, that sounds good. But what's required for something to be a lifestyle? I will argue everyone in this room has a lifestyle of sin. Now, it may not be a lifestyle of adultery. may not be a lifestyle of fornication. may not be a lifestyle of drunkenness. But I bet you you have a lifestyle of idolatry. I bet you have a lifestyle probably maybe even a covetousness. I know you have a lifestyle of sin. 
So is it just the sins listed here? And is it external or internal? You see the problems this brings up? Okay. Um, the language is similar to Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Let's turn there. Galatians 5, 19 to 21. This is another problematic passage. I at least wanted to get these two passages on the record uh, before we move on. All right? Everybody there? Galatians 5, we start in verse 18. If you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? We have another list, do we not? What's on the list? What's first? Adultery. Next? Fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envying, murder, drunkenness, revelings, and such alike of the which I tell you before, as I've told you in times past, that they that do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We have another list. If you do these things, what do you not inherit? Kingdom of God. Now, I want you to understand, this creates the Catholic system of mortal and venial. They put some sins in the list that would put you what? Out of the state of grace, therefore you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You don't even get to purgatory. That's, where that, that's why their list comes from, right? Now, there's a bunch of requirements you have to meet to, 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 for something to be a mortal sin. We can pull up the catechism and look at it, but we won't do it right now. Um, but you get the idea, right? Does this not create a problem? Yes. What does this seem to indicate? If you're truly saved, what will not identify your life will not be identified with what? With those sins. Now again, if it's external actions, could we agree that that would be halfway true? If it deals with the internal, does that create a bigger problem? Yes. yes. So is this internal or external? Does the text say? Well, I'm, I'm saying the text, If it would matter in this sense. If it's external, I, most people can pull off and, avoiding these externally. Agreed? Okay. So if it's external, you can make an argument. Yes. Okay. We, we, could, we could pull this off. We could pull this off. But it would still require what for your salvation? Putting works as something of uh, being a part of it. All right. Okay, now, he goes on, and, I mean, there's a long discussion here. I mean, he goes on for pages. He's going to bring in uh, James. He's going to bring in all kinds of other scriptures. He's going to bring in um, all kinds of verses about the fact that, hey, you've got to be changed. You have to be different. If you're not changed, if you're not different, you're not saved. All right, so... Instead of going through everything, because this, could, I mean, we got pages and pages. He's going to get into a lengthy discussion of James. We all know James creates all kinds of problems, because James basically comes straight out and says, you're not justified by what? Faith alone. Faith alone, right? Creates all kinds of problems. Okay, so how do we handle this view? What, what are probably some major points we need to take away from this view before we move on to the next view? All right, here's what we need to do, all right? Let's, so let's just try to summarize this, all right? I want to read everything about this view, but it will never get done, all right? And I think, we've, I think we have done a very good job of explaining. Uh, do you think we've been fair to the view? 
All right, so let's simplify view number two. If you were trying to explain view number two to someone, how would you summarize it? Now, your ability to summarize it tells me if we need to continue or if we can move on to view number three, okay? So it's all on you right now, okay? Summarize view number two. You're talking to someone about this problem and you, you, you're giving them two views. Everyone here can summarize view number one, right? View number one's easy to summarize. All right, now summarize view number two for me. Okay. All right, you're getting the major areas. Let me simplify it. View number two requires, number one, a different definition of justification. What's that definition? Justification is nothing more than an acquittal and a not guilty verdict. Right? Everybody got that? That's the first problem. Number two, this view states works are necessary, but as evidence of your justification. There's a problem because we would need evidence for justification if our definition of justification is right. You see how this keeps going back to the definition of justification? All right, is it agreed? What they should say is it's a, a, a evidence of sanctification, but then you have to link justification and sanctification together. You get all the problems, all right? Everybody see that? What is the biggest issue with the evidential view? What is the biggest issue with the evidential view? Do what? Okay, how much evidence is required? That's, a, that's just a, a, a great question. How many works are required? How much evidence does one need? Right? Now, what they typically say is, you know, like, they'll say, they'll, 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 they'll kind of act like that's a dumb question. They're like, look, it's not that complicated. You know, either your life reflects godliness or it doesn't. All right. But, that, but that's not an answer, is it? That's not really an answer. Okay. Exactly. There you go. The biggest problem with this view is this view basically restricts evidence as being simply external actions and your internal actions are basically excused or not considered that big a deal. In fact, this is how this view works. External actions equal mortal sin. Internal actions equal venial sin. Because we're... I think you would have to admit that a lot of, that most Christians are, are there's a lot of Christians guilty of those lists that we just read in 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5 at least internally would everyone agree? No, I've been guilty. Okay, good. At least one person will admit it. Okay. I ha- I've never committed any of them. Okay. We've all have. Okay, right. So, that's that you see but you see why you have to reduce it to an external act? That's a problem. Simply put, view number two is, hey, when you die, this is how it's going to work. Bobby, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Amen. Now, we need the evidence to prove you were. So he's going to judge your works. And guess what? If his works don't match up to his profession, he goes to hell. Now, can anybody think of a verse that creates major problems for this? There's one passage that we said is the one of the most troubling passages in all the Bible. Sarah's brought it up multiple times. 
Okay. Okay. No, Matthew. Yes. What happens in Matthew 7? Let find, go to Matthew 7 and find the passage about the, the judgment. This passage is the one. Remember, this one causes problems. This one causes problems for every view. Now, I think we need to come up with a new way to interpret this one. But this one, we, I want to just con- continue to remind you of these verses over and over and over. Right. Matthew seven twenty one. All right. Now, Matthew seven twenty one, verse twenty one creates enough problems on its own, even before we put it in its broader context. Verse twenty one: Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now, stop right here. This one creates already problem for for the for the free grace view. Hey, I just got to believe in Jesus. I don't need to do anything. Verse twenty one creates some problems, doesn't it? Yeah. It's not those who say Lord that gets into heaven. Those who do what? Do the will of the Father. Well, wait a minute. I only get to heaven if I do the will of God? Would everyone agree that's a problem? Verse 22. However, verse 22 creates a problem for verse 21, does it not? Many, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Now stop right there. What does that indicate? They're acknowledging him as Lord. Wait, Lordship salvation. You don't get saved unless you acknowledge him as Lord. They call him Lord twice. Yes? I always say, well, they didn't really mean it. Okay. Okay. All right. They should have that three times. Right. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name. Now, we can either say that they, they were preaching or they were actually able to prophesy. Whatever the case is, they were proclaiming the word of God verbally out to people. Next. And in thy name have cast out devils. They cast out demons. What else have they done? Number three. They've done many wonderful works. Many would argue that as being what? Either wonderful works as signs and wonders. Does uh, the NIV translate wonderful works differently? Uh, miracles. miracles. There we go. I was going to say. Some would interpret this as being miraculous. They did miracles. Now I want you to know, these people have already done more than me. I've never cast out a demon, and I've never done a miraculous work. Now, in spite of all of this, Lord, Lord, a profession... prophesied, proclaimed God's word, cast out demons and did miracles, and what happens to them? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. What iniquity were they doing? Do what? Okay, now if we're going to start judging their motivation, none of us are saved. Yeah, now, now I was getting ready to say, I think that's the only way to deal with this verse. This verse is just, just, this blows up every theory. Right? Oh, okay. All right, yeah, well. Yeah, well, I wonder where he got that from. Okay, I don't know. He didn't have the right, what does that mean? 
So, so I guess that's a requirement for salvation. Okay, right? You see how will this go? So uh, here's what I would say. Uh, I want to make sure everyone understands. Do you see how this verse breaks every view? If you're over here and you're like, I don't need any works. I don't need to do anything. I just need to believe in Jesus. Does Matthew 7 support your view? Everyone should say no because it doesn't. Yes? Right? If you say no, works are evidence. Does that support the evidential view? Absolutely does not. They had works. They got more works than I do. So where do you do with this? Right. I, I, I understand that. But the point is, is how would you be able to make the distinction? I mean, they're casting out demons and doing miracles. You have, true, you have true repentance and faith. That's how you're, yeah. See, they didn't have true repentance and faith. That's how, everyone's going to have an answer. But then how do you judge true? Remember, if you say you've got to have true repentance and faith, then you're, you're telling me that works are not even an evidence of true repentance and faith. Yeah, yeah. If you base it on these three verses, no view works. You understand? No view can get around these verses. So then what do we do with these verses? But how would you know you have a true profession? Casting out demons and doing miracles is not even enough proof. Even preaching is not even... What, what's the evidence? Okay. okay, so how could we handle these verses? How could we handle these verses? Okay, let's back up. I'm just going to offer on the spot. This is impromptu. Wasn't even prepared to do this. So I'm just going to throw out some ideas and see. All right, this is impromptu on the spot. So... So uh, those listening online, don't write any notes. Here, y'all write notes because we write everything in pencil because we can erase it whenever. Okay, all right. So, all right. But online, they'll be quoting me on this, okay? But I, wanna, I want us to think this through because I want you to agree. This verse, if you're going to teach the evidential view, this verse goes against the evidential view. If you're going to argue with me, all i got to do is believe in Jesus, this doesn't work. Calling him Lord, Lord, and you're like, well, they, don't, they didn't be- really believe in Jesus. Who are, how do you know? They're, they're, they're saying, Lord, Lord, and they're doing things. There's a lot of Christians who say, Lord, Lord, and never do anything. Yes? Okay, so what can we do? Well, back up. All right? Okay, if we start in chapter 7, verse 1, what does the chapter begin with? Now, I don't have any commentaries in front of me. I don't have any commentaries in front of me. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do a little hermeneutics, but we're just going to use hermeneutics by doing basic... We're going to just try to do observation, right? We're going to do observation, and then we'll try to move to some kind of interpretation, all right? So what do we need to do? We need to observe what's in this text, all right? Here we go. First, chapter 7, verse 1 begins with what? A discussion on what subject? Judging. Yes? Would everyone agree? All right. What are we told uh, to not do in verse 1? Judge not, lest you be judged. Okay. There's a, there's, there's a prohibition being argued here about judging. Now, you've got to be careful, right? And always remember this because I hate Christians' use of this verse. If, if one of the twins comes up to me and says, Pastor, judge not, lest ye be judged, what did they just do? They just made a judgment. 
that I'm judging, shut up! Okay? You can't judge my judging or you're violating what you just told me I'm doing. Okay? I can't stand when Christians judge not. Well, you just judge my judging, so you just violated the scripture you're quoting. How do people not understand that? It's like, man, the IQ level of... It's, oh, right? That has nothing to do with religion. That just has thinking. Judge not! I just judged that you're judging. So how about you learn to read and apply it to yourself, right? So obviously we know this verse can't mean it just that way. So what is he referring to? Well, let's go on. Judge not that ye, judge not that ye be not judged. Now remember, if I'm going to understand this, what, in fact, does it end in a period? It does in, a, in, in King James? Okay, so. But the point is, obviously we can't just take this alone. So we go on. For with what judgment ye judge, you shall be judged, and with what measure you may, it shall be measured to you again. All right? Let's simplify verse 2. What is verse 2 telling us? All right. So, simple, the, the, the major argument here is hey, don't judge, but it's really getting into how you judge, right? In other words, if I'm going to judge someone from a biblical perspective, the only thing I can judge according to is what? Scripture. And all I can do with Scripture is judge what? What's the only thing with Scripture that I can judge? External actions. I can't judge anyone's heart, right? I mean, we know we couldn't... Everyone would have gotten David wrong, right? People would have been like, David's done, he's he's garbage, he... When we would all been wrong. So uh, that tells us immediately, I can only judge his external actions. And, and that's the standard I'm going to be judged by. All right, okay, no major problem. Verse 3, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? All right, what does verse 3 emphasize? Take care of yourself first. Worry about yourself first. Okay, that's... Okay, yeah. Judge yourself. You want to judge, you want to start judging, judge yourself, right? Or how will thou say to thy brother, let me pull out thy mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, then shall thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy. Now please note, verse five is not saying I, I don't ever worry about anybody else. But what is it saying? I gotta take care of myself first, then I can help someone else. It's placing the emphasis on me. So far so good? Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Now stop right here. (laughs) Verse 6 literally requires judgment. (laughs) Right? I got to figure out who the dogs are. I got to figure out who the dogs are. If I, if I deem Joel the dog, then I'm not giving him any, uh, any of the, uh, that which is holy unto him. Right? Neither cast your pearls before swine. I've got to figure out who the dogs are. i got to figure out who the swine are. Right? Lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Verse 6 demands judgment. To say the Bible says don't judge, verse 6 literally demands a judgment. Hey, I... I'm not going to waste my time trying to give these people God's word because basically they're nothing more than dogs and swine. I'm just made a judgment. All right? 
Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. All right, this seems like a major uh, change, does it not? We went from judgment, now we're talking about prayer. Right? For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom it, uh, whom if his son asks bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them which ask him? All right? So we get into a discussion about prayer. So we go from judgment to prayer. All right? Now what happens in verse 12? Therefore, all things, whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What, what, what's another uh, way to, just, to paraphrase verse 12? The golden rule. Do unto others as you would like them to do to you. All right? So far, so good? Verse 13, enter in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Now right here, verse 13 requires what? Judgment. You got to figure out which one is the straight gate and which one is the the wide gate. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Right? Hey, you got, the, 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 way, the way to the straight gate is narrow and few even find it. That's making a judgment. Now, verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Now, stop right here. Now, verse 15 is going to require judgment. What do I have to determine? Who's a false prophet? Now, this sounds like it's going to be difficult. Why is it going to be hard to figure out who the false prophets are? They come in sheep's clothing. Ah, okay. This is very important, right? This is a very important passage. I got to figure out who the false prophets are, but they come in sheep's clothing. This is going to be difficult. How am I going to know? Okay, well, verse... Um, Verse 16, you shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. A corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Now stop right here. Now this, verse 16 to 17, becomes a major discussion about this whole problem we're talking about. This this would be an argument for the evidential side. How do you know if you're saved? Good fruit. But wait a minute. Let's let the text speak for itself. Does this have anything to do in the context about your salvation or my salvation? This is about how to determine who is a false prophet. Right? That, we got to leave it there first. Everyone, because you've all heard Christians say, look, I don't judge people, I'm just a fruit inspector. Okay, okay well, first of all, slow down. This is about judging the fruit of whom? Teachers. Teachers. Now, what fruit am I looking for? Good or bad, but it doesn't really define what the fruit is? It hasn't yet. Would you agree? 
Yes? No? All right. Okay. Now, um, every, uh, and then we'll go back on verse 17 just to put it back. Uh, Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, but neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Now, you've got to stop right there because, see, right, right here, if you apply this to your life, you just see what just happened? If you're saved, you can only produce good fruit. Isn't that what verse 18 just said? Cannot. Now, right here, now if you apply, now you see, this is where the evidential side comes along. I'm like, okay, let's use this for the evidential side. A good fruit, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. That means there'll never be any evil fruit in your life. Ever. And they'll say, well, no, it's not saying that. Well, what is it saying? It says cannot. Now, you're going to tell me cannot doesn't mean cannot. It just means, well, you know, it, it, it's going to do pretty good. It's going to do better than it's going to do better. It doesn't say it's going to do better. It's going to say it's impossible to do what? Bring forth evil fruit. Yeah, good tree cannot produce evil, uh, evil fruit. All right, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Now, all this, this is so di- like, how do you? I know lost people who would, from an, a human perspective, produce good fruit. If you believe Mother Teresa was lost, right? Which, if we believe that the Catholic system of justification is wrong, that's a false gospel. She produced a lot of good fruit. She dedicated her life to something that most of you would probably never want to get 100 miles close to. Dealing with people with leprosy. We'd be like, I'm not even going near that. Well, is that not good fruit? How do you work that? Okay. Okay. All right. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know... Them. Now, who's the them in context? False prophets. You can't, you got to be really careful ripping this out of context and start trying to apply it to everybody. Do you see the problems with you do this? Like, if you start trying to apply this to everyone, you're condemned. Because every one of you has produced some evil fruit at some point in your Christian life. You probably did this week. Some of you may have even done so on the way here. Some of you right now in your mind may be producing evil fruit because you're thinking bad things about me. Well, man, there's a lot of agreement on that, okay? All right. right. Yeah, but that's lying, so therefore therefore you've just produced some evil fruit. All right. Uh, So, uh, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. All right. Now, that one sounds problematic. Agreed? Well, that, that's, that, that's a possible argument. If it's going back to the false prophets, then it's saying, hey, there's going to be a lot of false prophets going around saying, Lord, Lord, saying, Lord, Lord preaching in my name, but that doesn't mean that they are saved. Now, again, if we leave it to the false prophet, okay, if we, if we, uh, if we broaden it to everyone, now this is a problem. Agreed? Yes? Okay. 
Right, but, uh, but I, I think we have to leave this in the context of, of actual prophets and actual teachers. If we apply it to everyone, then we're, we're, all, we're all lost. No one's going to be saved. Does everybody understand that? Because every one of you have produced... And, uh, and, to be, and to be... Let's be fair. This is even problematic even if we would keep it to false prophets or to prophets. Because even teachers produce... You, you got a problem no, no matter which way you go here, right? Okay, verse uh, 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in that name? Now that literally puts it in the category of the false prophets. Agreed? Yeah. Okay. So, now, they, what does he never do? What does he never offer us in this situation here? This is what he never offers us in this, in this section. Does he define what good fruit is? Does he define what evil fruit is? Yeah, doing the will of the Father is the good fruit. I guess, I guess we could argue there. And not doing the But what does that include? If you say the will of the Father, that would be what kind of obedience? Perfect obedience. Now, does anybody have a cross-reference to do the, doing the will of the Father? 21, I believe. Okay, Romans 2.13. Look at your cross-references to see if you find anything that's helpful. Well, we'll stop right here because we're already out of time. We'll have to come back to this. This wasn't part of the plan, but this is critical because this is just a key verse, all right? So we'll stop here, then we can look at the cross-references, and you can look at cross-references in between, and then we'll go back and see what we can find um, uh, in the next hour and see how far we can advance this. I wanted to jump right to three, but, you know, this, this is causing us a little problem, but that's okay. All right, we'll stop, we'll pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, as we try to understand the basis of how we're going to be judged and we read a passage like in Matthew 7, trying to figure out how we're going to be judged, Lord, this raises so many questions and so many difficulties. I pray that we're not afraid of questions and we're going to continue to pursue until we figure out what an answer is. And I pray that you would help us do just that. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,